So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. And here's what we have for you this month as you listen en route to your outdoor gatherings. I didn't lose sleep at night thinking, you know, thousands of animals have died because of what I'd done. I think that would be a bit trite to have said that. Diplomacy, hypocrisy and cruelty. I meet the man who headed up Britain's fur industry. Plus... A brand new type of stimulation in an area of the body that is not associated with struggle... Alex Fox tackles delayed ejaculation and Ollie Peart heads down to the hive. It's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters. And it turns out I was not the only one who was somewhat disappointed last episode when Mr Peart said that he couldn't try Microsoft Flight Simulator because he didn't have a PC. Uh, Chris has been in touch to say, Ollie, with a little bit of search effort, he would have found X-Plane, the cross-platform flight simulator based upon mathematical models of flight and control surfaces to provide a realistic home simulator experience. <laughs> I don't know if Chris works for X-Plane. Uh, with X-Plane, Ollie might have achieved his aim of flying a plane before becoming a DJ. It's a valuable suggestion, Chris, but hindsight is a beautiful thing. As you say, it would have depended on a bit of search effort which is often the obstacle holding him back, isn't it? Bless him. Uh, But, you know, from that well, entertainment sometimes springs. Uh, Before we get going this month, a massive thank you to everybody who has donated financially to this show. I know I've said it before, I'll say it again. It's true, we literally couldn't make this show unless you contributed financially. So if you value what we do and you can afford to uh, buy us a beer each month or just as a one-off, then please visit modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click Beer Money. We're an independent show. You help us keep going. Uh, Here is the new Beer Money subscribers roll call of honour. Hallowed be their names and their $5 plus contributions. Ethan, Peter Stewart, Paul Walker, Nadia Shenitsinner, Michael Lee, who has started revisiting our back catalogue during running and cycling sessions. Jonathan Pugh, Diana Watts, Jake Kirkman, Victoria Bowker, Jonathan Harris, Catherine Lang, and Elliot Byrne from Atlanta, Georgia. Can you feel the burn? I can. Who says, you guys really have a great show. I can't believe it's free. Um, Well, it is only free, Elliot, because uh, about 2% of you actually send us money. So be that 2%. Modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click beer money. Uh, Also, hello to Abdo from Cairo, now living in Berlin, who says, Ollie, I contributed the equivalent of four beers, but as a practising Muslim, I'm not allowed to buy alcohol, so please consider it fish and chips. 
Um, I mean, just if it wasn't clear, Abdo, it is an analogy, the beer thing. I'm not, I've got gout. The beer money actually gets spent on things like microphones and petrol money and web servers and stuff. Uh, but sure, call it whatever you like. Even the mention of fish and chips can put a smile on my face. So, yes. Uh, right, coming up in this edition, you will learn what the stick test is. You will learn how much an elective labiaplasty will set you back. And you'll learn which of my co-hosts pronounces orchard as orchard. Let's go. Okay, let's do the zeitgeist then. Your trends tested with the living embodiment of everything that is uh, cutting edge, Ollie Pitt. Including top knots, actually. I know we haven't spoken about this. Just bear with me. It's all right. We don't need to prep all our bands. I think my hair's really long. You have an exceptional barnet at the moment. You look yeah. like a beautiful girl, but with a very long beard. <laughs> well, I've got to that stage where my hair's actually sort of tick- it like tickles my eye. Like yeah. it's really annoying and it gets in my face. So Pip gave me a, a hairband and I've been practicing putting it into a, a, a top knot. And I can confirm that it makes me look like a prick. And I'm never wearing them out, ever. I'm going to keep, but in the house, it's just practical. I mean, I am so keen to get back to a hairdresser, I can't tell you. I booked the earliest possible appointment that I could, and it's not for another two weeks. Another two weeks of looking like Gene Wilder on a very bad bender. You look all right. You look a bit like Paul Simon. I mean, pick your elderly Jew, but in any case, I'd rather have shorter (laughs) hair. Anyway, um, we're here to talk about your suggestions uh, for Ollie to investigate, and uh, Christine in Northern Ireland got in touch, Ollie, to say that you should investigate what I'm sure is a very, very popular trend at this time of year, Uh, Maybe not one that you naturally think of the younger demographic for. Beekeeping. We speculated last episode that there would be a friendly local beekeeper in Dorset who would be more than happy to introduce a new generation to the arts. Was that correct? Yeah, in a way I could never have imagined. (laughs) I met up with a chap called Mark. Uh, He lives in an orchard. And this place is... Kevin McLeod's wet dream. It is beautiful, right? It's this orchard with uh, this flat pack house, which looks like a Swiss chalet. And Mark and his partner, they actually uh, lived there in a caravan for quite a while. And then they got planning permission to build this house, but with agricultural ties. So they have to make a certain percentage of their income from the land. Otherwise, they couldn't have built this house. So they're very much tied to it. It's their entire livelihood. So that's a different league then, isn't it, to your hobbyist beekeeper? This is serious. And they actually teach people uh, there when, you know, not during COVID, obviously, they teach people how to um, look after bees and a little bit more stuff about bees. So he sat me down and he taught me through all of the different things you could imagine about bees. Most of it, 99.9% of it, I've completely forgotten. We actually work on the basis that if the information is retained by you, then it must be really interesting. I am your filter. So this is the stuff that you need to pay attention to. There is only one type of bee in this country that produces honey. The main honey-producing bee is called the honey bee. Um, And I knew, you might have known this, but in a hive, there's the queen bee. Literally all I know is that it's all about the queen. They'll die for the queen, they follow the queen. If you want to do beekeeping, you've got to do some queen manipulation, right? That's all I know. A hive is made of, of, of the queen... Uh, another load of bees called the drones, which are basically flying testicles. Um, and once they're used, they just rip their arms and balls off and chuck them out. Wow. It's like the Hunger Games. But the workers are the ones that you'll see flying about. And they're the ones that, you know, collect all the nectar and the pollen and all that kind of stuff. And they're all female, the workers, which I didn't okay. know that either. Yeah. And the way that Mark produces his honey is slightly different from 
the mainstream stuff that you get on on the shelves. So what he does is he collects the honey once the bees have an additional batch of honey. So honey is bees' main source of food through the winter. They need to eat through the winter, right? What certain beekeepers do is they'll take the honey when they've produced it and then they'll feed them sugar. To make sure humans get all the honey. That seems yeah, a bit unfair. <clears throat> exactly. And the problem with that as well is what you're essentially doing is you're, put, you're, you're just feeding bees sugar. They're not getting the, the, the nutrients in their feed from, from flowers and plants. So the honey that's produced from that process isn't as nutritionally flavorful as, um, as natural honey. And the other thing with the stuff in the supermarket, the clear stuff... That's been heated and boiled and to make it look clear and runny and lovely, all that really means is all of the good stuff's been been cooked off. It's been denaturalized. It's a bit like this with cheese, I think. Like mm. I really like kind of supermarket cheddar. It's delicious. Oh, yeah. But it's its own separate category, really, isn't it? It's actually not cheddar. It's just like its own thing. And in the same way I kind of feel with honey, I get that runny honey stuff that you can squeeze out of a pot and it's really consistent and it always tastes really sugary and the same. And I get it for the kids to have on their pancakes, but I wouldn't put it in my tea. I wouldn't have it on a piece of toast because I, I can taste it's not really honey. Like it's its own thing. Yeah, it's, it is basically sugar that's just gone through an additional process, which is a bee. And you mentioned last time, Ollie, that uh, COVID might change the flavour of honey, right? Yes. Because like less pollution and stuff. And he said, well, maybe because... The flavour of honey is 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 made up of you know the different types of pollen and nectar and all that kind of stuff that you co- that the bees collect and actually he keeps notes of the types of flowers that are flowering at the time when that honey is produced so he can make flavour notes based on the honey that he has. So say there's I don't know crocuses are out he'll go well the crocuses are out and I've had this honey produced this will have this flavour of crocus. But what he said what what's more likely to happen thanks to covid isn't isn't the lack of pollution necessarily because it's really difficult to determine how that would actually change the flavour. It's more that people are gardening more and mm-hmm. planting more because the problem with bees is that there's not enough food to go around. This is a, a historical thing. So you talk about it being a a trend lots of people are getting into beekeeping as a hobby in fact it's a massive hobby there's something like 40,000 hobbyist beekeepers in the country but there's not enough food for them to go around which is why people supplement it with with sugar but there's also another trend where people are letting hives kind of just do their own thing completely but they're not getting enough food so those hives are dying so there's a balance that needs to be struck at the moment where they're trying to sort of get as much much of the sort of natural food as possible in the way in, in flowers and that kind of thing but also supplementing it with a little bit of sugar so when you say let hives do their own thing is it possible like is it is it the natural agricultural way to just build a house for some bees and then go and take the honey you don't have to do anything it would have been hundreds of years ago but because of historical farming methods that's happened you know the meat industry and that kind of thing it's absolutely decimated bees bloodline basically they're just a bunch of weak pathetic insects that will die at any change in in weather or conditions and that's the real problem you know the biggest thing you can do to help bees is not become a beekeeper that's a misconception i think like beekeepers think that they're doing a really good thing for the environment they're not at all the best thing you can do is plant flowers for bees plant food and he also artificially inseminates his bees. I have a photo of the machine that you use to do this. It's basically the most horrifying, torturous device you've ever seen in your life. But you Imagine basically how it feels put, for the bee. Yeah, well, this is it. So you put the bee in like a, a tube and there's like two prongs. One prong pulls its sting to one side. 
the other one opens up its vulva <gasps> and then the pump comes in and pumps the semen into into the bee and the, the thing is is that he gets a lot of flack from that from people that want to do it in the fully natural way but because of the way that bees have been treated historically and the way that uh, they've been farmed and produced their bloodlines are really weak and pathetic because they all inbreed and by doing it this way he's able to control which bees breed with which bees so he he's strengthening their bloodlines he's making sure that cousins aren't fucking each other basically mm. um but I've never seen inside a hive and it is a truly incredible thing because you kind of it's so intricate and just mad that it's just weird to think that it actually exists in the first place. And there's really tiny little details that as a beekeeper, you kind of have to look out for so you can monitor your bees. So one of the things he showed me was a, a bee in, you know, like the little honeycomb thing that you've, you, you've seen. You've seen the little honeycomb shapes. Yeah. And it's a bee's head sort of poking out and it's dead, but its tongue's out. And he was saying that that bee was hungry in the hive, but they were like, no, we don't need you because we've got too many bees at the moment, so we're not going to feed you. So they just let him die. So mm. if they're head out with the tongue out, that's what's happened. I don't think I've ever got close enough to observe a bee's tongue. Like, I don't even know what colour is a bee's tongue. But if it's head in with the bum out, it means that it's starved to death and the hive's not getting enough food. So then if you spot that, then you know that your hive's not getting enough food, so you know you need to supplement the feed with sugar. In the room that we were in, there were one, two, three, four, but there were five hives. The room? Yeah, it was like a... Well, it was, Indoor say, hives? Yeah, they, they were in like a little shed. Why? Like a, well, because to keep them warm in the winter, because they're like penguins. They, they, they sort of huddle to keep warm in the winter when it's really, really cold. And as they grow and as they develop, each hive will have something like 50,000 bees in it. And wow. he would, uh, I think he said he has between 10 and 20 hives. So a lot of bees. And when you've got that many bees... In an enclosed space, what do you have to do to control them? You smoke. In in the wild, bees react to smoke because fire's bad, right? So they mm-hmm. they clear off as soon as there's any kind of smoke. So if you're if you're walking around in a field and you suddenly mm. get attacked by a swarm, get your lighter out. Is that right? Light a fire. Yes, that's right, Ollie. Light start a forest fire. And get rid of those bees. <laughs> it would work, but you'd absolutely decimate the rest of the wildlife. Yeah. yeah. When he said that he uses smoke to control them, I thought, oh, it's going to be fucking bellows of the stuff. It's going to be everywhere. And he's got these little smokers with a little bellow on the end. And he just blew a couple of puffs of smoke into the top of the hive. And then it, the, the bees sort of go, oh, fuck is this? Oh, okay. Mm. Oh, I'm just going to get out. And then they just start flying off and get out of his way. I tell you what, the thing that I found most astonishing about it is is the complexity of it and, and how sort of attached to all of the natural world you have to be in order to keep bees. So you have it, it, it makes you think about literally everything. So like when the flowers are blooming, what kind of flowers are blooming, the weather. The weather's really important for bees. So it's not enough to just have flowers. The flowers have to be slightly damp underfoot so that you can, you know, they can get, get access to the nectar and all this kind of mm. stuff and all of these various complexities. So if, if you're somebody that really wants to get, uh, you know, feel at one with nature, keeping bees definitely is something that would help you do that. That's interesting because a lot of the things that we've had you try before along these lines, you know, gathering nettles to put into soup or running in the sea with your cock out, all of that stuff the appeal of it is obvious to the people who love it, right? Because it's it's meditating with nature, but also you don't have to do very much. You don't have to think about stuff very much. It's up to you what you're thinking. Whereas what you're saying with this is it's quite mathematical. I mean, it, genuinely, if you are thinking of doing it and, and, and keeping bees, I mean, there's so much to think about. But his genuine and real advice was to think twice about it. If you think by keeping bees, you're doing a good thing for the environment or you, you know, you're doing your bit for nature, you're not. If you are going to do it, though, uh, what is the current 
newfangled way of going about it? What's the 2021 spin on beekeeping? Well, instead of a hive, you get a big old log. and You get you... a subscription service. <laughs> they send you a bee a month. No, uh, <laughs> you get... <laughs> No, you get you get a big old log. Uh, you cut it open, and the, the the sort of the slats that you get in a normal hive, you kind of you build them in, so you're able to take them out. Oh, um, nice! Which Mark mentioned, and he actually really likes the idea of it. The trouble is, they're slightly harder to manage. In fact, they're a lot harder to manage than a, a normal hive. They're just than a purpose-built hive designed by an expert. Yes, I imagine there exactly. would be yeah, yeah. a log with some yeah. holes in it. That's the sort of the trend, and the trend is to t- take it more down this natural route. But is there any like field of dreams element of like build it and they'll come? Like if you cut your holes in a log. And just leave it. Will you get bees? No. <laughs> you might, but I mean, you've got you've got to you've got to go and get some bees. <sighs> it's like the bug hotel all over again. Twenty quid I spent in home base. I'm not getting that back. It's got, it's got this empty pyramid-shaped wooden thing on my shelf. What bugs? What bugs was supposed? To, what bugs is it supposed to attract? Bees? I, I don't know. I saw the label and I was like, oh, "That's a nice idea. Give the worms somewhere to live. They've got somewhere to live. They live like under the ship pipe. It's fine. They don't mind." So, would you do it again? No. No. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. I'm not sure I'd be inspired to do it from your description either, but it made a nice change from investigating Hoovers, didn't it? Sorry, Christine. Uh, if you have a trend you would like Ollie to investigate on a future edition of the show, reach out via our feedback form on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Uh, Ollie, would you like to know what your challenge is for next month's show? Always, Ollie. Always. It's my <laughs> favourite time of the month. Hey, you, you made friends for life with Sucky. Uh, It's from Christian in Birmingham who says, I haven't been to a restaurant for a year. Uh, I would, therefore, like Ollie to whet my appetite by looking into the dining trends post-pandemic. Ooh, that's quite good, isn't it? Because what the hell have chefs been doing? Nothing. They've just been sat in their kitchens cooking up culinary delights that we've never seen. Well, I suppose there is an element of that, isn't there? Like, just normally, at this Mm. point in a year... I'd have read a lot of filler magazine articles about like which cuisine of food I should be trying and who's created the latest veggie burger using some weird lab-grown soy. Yeah. I have no idea. I don't know if I should still be eating poke. I don't know if uh, Mongolian is the thing anymore. I don't know. And when I go back to a restaurant, what should I be ordering? Well, that's the thing, actually, because no one's been travelling. There's going to be very little uh, sort of foreign influence. Culinary imperialism, yeah. Well, we'll just go out and it'll just be, so what's on the menu? Sausages. Well, I mean, the truth is I would be quite happy with a 1970s Chinese takeaway if I actually got to see someone else whilst I was eating it. Uh, But um, yes, I nonetheless have a hunger to try something new, as always. So we thought maybe we could, uh, you and I could actually meet up in person in a month's (gasps) time and record this. I know. And try wow. some new things, like trendy things. Ah, uh, yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah, let's sit in the park and get drunk. Yeah! <laughs> Something like that. In a moment, you will meet Mike in our middle feature, which also touches on animal welfare this month. But first, we should thank our sponsors for this edition of the Zeitgeist, Manscaped.com. The best in men's below-the-waist grooming. That's right. Now, you may be all top-not up top, Ollie, but you're mm. smooth as a baby's bottom underneath, aren't you? Silky smooth, Ollie. Yeah. You could, uh, what could you do with it? You could see your face in it. <laughs> I, could, I couldn't do anything with it. I could just marvel at the way you've been using our sponsor's products. Uh, because Manscaped have created really the best ball trimmer in the business. I mean, it, there's no point shopping around. If you want to snip your pubes, go for the Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0. Tell them why, Ollie. Because when you're shaving your nuts, right, there is... 7,000 RPMs going on right by your scrope, right? That's a so powerful that, that, motor. 
it just chews through your hair. That doesn't sound very appetising or comfortable, but it's very, very nice. That's probably why they trademarked the phrase quiet stroke, because they didn't want to have a say, it chews through your ball hair. <laughs> they want us to say it's got quiet stroke technology. It, it munches through your pubes. <laughs> it's like the hungry caterpillar on yes, your pubes. That's what it, it is. does. They do have a great range of other products as well, and you can get a discount off all of them, from boxer shorts to cologne, uh, 20% off and free shipping when you use the code MAN at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code M-A-N-N. Your balls will thank you. And mine thank you, Ollie. All of my body thanks you. Thank you, left ball. Thank you, (laughs) right ball. Uh, Time for our record of the month now. It's called Orange Juice. It's by Friars and it's available to stream now. Everything looked normal from the top of Fifth Avenue. I was in the back of the car when I first heard the news. Felt my adrenaline levels rising through the roof Then I got this sinking feeling I don't think I'll ever lose Turn this thing around and go directly to a dark saloon I don't feel like talking, I don't feel like drinking Orange juice, orange juice, orange juice, orange juice, orange juice I don't care Have you ever found yourself at odds with something your employer is doing? Perhaps you've had to participate in a practice you find problematic as part of your job. But the chances are you haven't had to be the public face of those things. Mike Moser is retired now, but he was a professional advocate. His job was to represent industries and defend their practices in public, including, for example, a global mining group. Then one day he got a call from a headhunter. And they said, um, look, we're, we're aware of your background uh, and we're looking for somebody to join this, um, this international organisation. And it's, uh, it's internal communications of a sort. And they went on to explain what the position was. And I said to them, well, that, that's great. Um, you know, who is it? And they kind of slightly evaded that. They went on to explain more about the <laughs> sparkling communication opportunities and career progression, all the things that you'd expect to hear. And again, I said to them, well, look, this is great, but who is it? And I guess the more that they evaded this, the more my interest got piqued. And then finally they said to me, it's the fur industry. And my immediate response, which I remember even now, is, really? They said, look, just go away and have a little think about this. And my immediate prejudice against this, because I had this firm view on what fur was like. What was that view? My view was, well, fur, well, it's, it's old-fashioned. You know, Who wears fur today? Well, fur, isn't that about abusing animals? And I went away and did some of my own independent research and I realised, well, there's a really probably a really good communications opportunity here, which is, again, let's challenge a few preconceived ideas. What are the facts? Let's get the facts out there. Challenge is the right word, isn't it? Because you must have known even then that this is a very controversial area. You know, this is an area where you're going to be on the defensive most of the time. So yes, it is controversial and it's very colourful, but it's also historical. It's also um, related to the fashion industry. I thought, well, it's going to be vibrant. It will never be boring. And as a comms professional, um, that's quite an exciting opportunity. I joined the International Fur Federation in 2008 
and that represented the entire fur supply chain from farmers and trappers through to the major auction houses, manufacturers, dressers and dyers, wholesalers, retailers. And I was, um, I was recruited to look to develop and implement a traceability program so that people could be more confident that the fur they were buying had come from countries with welfare regulations in place. So who are the big players, actually? The big fur farming countries um, were Canada, America, Denmark was the largest, Poland, the Netherlands was, um, trapping mostly in Canada and America and Russia. And trapping means hunting a wild animal, does it? As opposed to having a farm where they're bred for fur? Yes. About 90% of fur was from specialist fur farms and about 10%. 15% in some years was wild fur that was, uh, was trapped very not I think a great deal of it was, was shot but it's mostly it was trapped so that would be things like coyote and sable um, animals such as that and is there something I'm trying to draw an analogy with uh, food where like something that's hunted has a gamey taste doesn't it? it's a different kind of meat is there a different look to fur that's been hunted rather than farmed there's there's there is a difference I think um, in in density of hair um, obviously, animals that lived in the wild are, are exposed to different environmental um, conditions. Most of the animals that are farmed are from the very northern latitudes, so they probably will have a higher fur density. It was more, I think, um, preserving a way of life. Um, a lot of the trappers are third, fourth, fifth generation trappers, and um, they'd carried on, they'd inherited their trap line, and they'd carried on trapping. And if you look at historically, I mean, Canada really was born as a nation off the back of the fur trade. You know, the pioneers, the early pioneers in Canada were the fur trade. Um, I'm thinking of Leonardo DiCaprio and the Revenant now. And that's absolutely right. And there was a large element of truth in that. And where was it going? Um, Because even in 2008, I don't think there were any high street stores that were openly selling fur in Britain. So who was? The UK has, has stood out a little bit in terms of it was the first country in the world to ever ban fur farming. In 2000, um, the vote was taken. In 2003, the last fur farm in the UK was shut down. And so it was pioneering in that respect. Fur has continued to be sold in the UK, though um, sales have declined quite rapidly. The number of fur outlets has declined rapidly. I mean, where? Like in independent retailers, basically. Yeah. Um, today, there may be... Three dedicated fur shops, maybe four in the UK. The vast majority of fur that is sold is sold through fashion outlets. It's sold as fashion shops, and it's mostly trim, fur trim on outdoor wear like parkers. Um, you very rarely see a fur coat on the streets of the UK today. It's just nowhere near as popular as it used to be. But back in 2008, of course, we were beginning to see the beginning of the global recession. But fur bucked that trend. And this was what was quite remarkable from an economic perspective, is the price of fur at these international auctions, where most of the fur was traded, continued to rise and rise and rise. And it peaked at about 2013, 2014, where one mink pelt was selling for like $120, $140, When you think that the big fur coats required 24 of those pelts, the sheer material cost was thousands just to make one. And this was down to something rather... Odd, and this was China. The Chinese consumers at that time were discovering the luxuries of the West, and at the same time, very high-priced commodities such as jewellery, cars were also going through the roof as the Chinese 
um, um, consumers fell in love with fur. And so the Chinese manufacturers desperately tried to buy fur and the price of fur auction went up and up and up. Did you wear fur? Um, for a while I did. What did you wear? Um, I had a parka with a fur trim. I bought it because fur is one of the most tactile materials, fabrics you can, you can imagine. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. It feels amazing. And it, it delivers, for those people who wear it and want to wear it, 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 it delivers an emotional response. There's no doubt about that. What was the emotional response you had from putting on your it, fur parka? It feels good. You know, I, it, it, when I wore it and I had put my hood up when it was cold out, having that fur trim on the hood, it felt good. What was it? It was Raccoon. It was Raccoon? Yeah, it was Raccoon. There is one particular brand who I won't mention, who, um, you know, they've, they're very, very popular globally now. And you see their badge on your, the left arm of the outdoor parka. Mm-hmm. They use Coyote. But an awful lot of others tend to use um, Raccoon because it's a lot cheaper. And also you can farm raccoons. So do you, I mean, do you remember going in to advocate for the fur industry wearing your raccoon parka? Yeah. The very first time I went to Mink Farm, um, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was shocking. The sheds are, let's say, 30 metres long. Uh, and they're open at the sides. They've got covered at the top. And along each side of these sheds are the cages next to each other, literally next to each other. So there could be maybe 100 cages in each shed, and these are open. Now, these animals are next to one another in these cages. And you look at this, and you just think, my God, those cages are small. Do they ever leave those cages? No, they never leave those cages. But again, I... From birth? No, from birth. They spend their entire lives in these cages. I put a lot of faith in the science. I actually went to the symposium where these papers, these science welfare papers were presented. I read the peer reviews. I met the scientists. And I looked at the objectivity of the science. And I thought, well, how else do you find welfare? Um, well, you can't, you can't ask a mink if it's happy or not. You have to, okay, stress. That's a good. So one measure of the stress that they suggest is cortisol. They take blood tests and they can look at a particular habitat and they can say, is it animal stressed? Well, the cortisol levels say, no, it's not. And there's other measures. There's the stick test. Is the animal fearful? And they poke a stick in the cage. And if the mink attacks the stick, it's aggressive. If it ignores it, it's indifferent. If it runs away from it, then it's, it's, it's scared. Um, and the farmers use that to determine which mink they're going to breed for the next season because they want to breed out aggression. Now, and why are they kept like that? You know, in, in other animal product, there's a movement to free range or more space or more accountability. Is that the case in fur as well? No. Unfortunately, it's fundamentally impossible. Well, it isn't. I guess you, you could say that trapping is free range. Exactly. Exactly. But the, the numbers of pelts that are, ta- that are produced as a result of trapping compared to farming, is, is negligible. Uh, one fur farm can have 50,000 animals in, in a fairly small area. I suppose the argument is, could, could they have 20,000 animals with three times as much space? Well, no, they couldn't. Let's take the two main fur types. If you take mink and foxes, they're territorial. And therefore, you couldn't keep them in an enclosure. And if you did, you'd have such a small number, it simply wouldn't be cost effective. And that leads on to what is a really fundamental problem with the fur farming, is that these animals are juxtaposed 
They're literally within a foot of each other. And that's absolutely unnatural. They're, they, they, are, they are aware that they're in close proximity to other animals. And in the wild, they would have their territories. They would roam. They would defend their territories. They can't do that in these cages. So that's another level of stress. Not only are they in these tiny cages... But you were still saying, let's measure the stress using cortisol that's and how what they react the scientists, uh, That's what the, the scientists had a whole range of criteria on which they would measure welfare. And my initial belief was, well, this is science. It's peer-reviewed science. Therefore, they must know more than I do. Were they being paid by pressure groups and organisations? It, it would be cynical to say that the scientists were in the pocket of the fur trade. I, I am not saying that at all. I do believe the scientists I met were genuinely believed that their science was delivering high levels of welfare. So look, you know, I, I travelled and I, I met people in the industry who were very passionate about what they did. I met farmers who were second, third, fourth generation who cared very much about their animals. How, what did they say when you asked them? Because that's a bit different, isn't it? It's yeah. one thing to be talking to a journalist. Then you know you have to say, oh, but look at the science and, you know, I've been to the farms and they're very well maintained. But when you're actually talking to the farmer over a cup of tea, did you raise concerns? Did you say, how do you answer this question? There were times I would say to the farmers, look, you know, these animals are caged. But I guess I was also, there was a degree of respect, you know, for me to go to their homes i mean they lived on the farms but also then to say well how could you do this how could you keep these animals in these cages when it was a fundamental part of the process it's not like i was surprised had they delivered something had i gone out there and delivered something as a surprise i could have gone really you can't do that but i knew that these animals were caged i knew what the cage sizes were i knew what the council of europe i knew what the world regulations were so for me to go out there and then to say to them how could you do this i think would have just been you know it would, it would have been a bit daft, actually, wouldn't it? Were the standards always kept to? Now, that's the great question, because the um, certainly um, the protagonists would, would, would try to suggest that here's the evidence, and they would show pictorial evidence of animals that obviously had been injured and were suffering during stress, um, not being directly involved with the farmers. Whenever these exposés would come out, I would always go to the farmers' representatives and say, OK, What's the story here? Here's accusations of this farm in Finland, these foxes, open wounds. What's the story? And they would come back and they would give us um, their their reply. No, this farm, that's a sick animal. You always get sick animals. In a farm of 50,000, you always going to get some sick animals. They've gone to the, 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 the hospital and it's out of context. Um, but of course, you only hear that so many times before you start to get a very frustrated that, look, I'm, I'm having to try to to explain those images which are highly emotional and highly emotive that animal undoubtedly is suffering but why does it keep happening and more importantly and i'll ask these questions internally why does it take the animal rights people to expose these procedures why hasn't the industry managed to come up with alternative changes to the process where this isn't going to happen and the answer is because they're caged you could not get away from the fact that it was the caging of the animals it was a fundamental problem. I stayed with the International Fur Federation for several years, but then in 2014, I was asked to become the chief executive of the British Fur Trade Association. That's a big step, isn't it? Because on a comms level, you are being the professional advocate, you're making a case, you're the spokesperson. If you're the MD, you are responsible for the industry operating. It's a different level of responsibility. Yeah, and um, 
I, I didn't go into it naively, but I didn't realise, I guess, how much it would be down to me as an individual to be that almost sole representative of, of the industry in the UK as far as the media and the um, um, political situation was concerned. I was um, invited, let's put that word in inverted commas, to give evidence at a select committee who were doing an investigation into allegations of mislabeling. And I had to appear and give evidence in front of them. So mislabeling as in people were buying fur without even realising it was real? There was, there was, yes, it was a campaign that had been initiated by the Humane Society in this country, in the UK, who had found that there were some fake fur products that were containing real fur. And the suggestion was that that was an intentional tactic by the fur industry. Um, it wasn't. No, I was going to say, that, I mean, that sounds actually a relatively easy one for you to bat away. If your whole thing is, well, we're trying to increase ethical standards and, you know, we don't make it here in Britain. Presumably, if it ends up in the supply chain, actually, that really isn't your fault. That's to do with the, the stores that are buying it from the wrong people. That, that's absolutely right. And that, that was the, my main line of defence. But, you know, as, as a comms professional, I actually really enjoyed it. I woke up that morning thinking, <laughs> when I go to bed tonight, I would have, having sat in front of these, these MPs in, 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 in the commons, and I know none of them are friends of the fur trade. In fact, most of them would like to have seen it shut down there and then. And they're showboating. I've, absolutely. Right? It, they it know was, the cameras are on. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I thrived. I was very confident I knew my topic. And I didn't think there were any questions that they could ask me that I couldn't confidently answer. Well, except, I guess, being in Parliament, you're sort of quasi under oath, aren't you? It's like a judicial process. So some of the sleight of hand that you'd use talking to the media isn't going to fly. Um, sleight of hand. That's, that's an interesting... <laughs> there is room in our lives for diplomacy and tact. Um, there's a borderline that we all have to determine where's between hypocrisy and diplomacy. Um, and I think that's a bit mercurial. Most of us maybe would find that slightly flexible depending on the situation. But I would never, ever, I've never, ever lied. There's no need to lie. I think it's a case of trying to present the facts. And also, but were there things that you said in Parliament that you were like, ah. You know, I yeah. have to say this, but yes. I, I can see the other side here. Well, oh, absolutely. That's a very good question. And I think the one which I look back now, they wanted to know, particularly the chairman, about welfare in China. Now, I'd actually been out to China several times myself, visiting fur farms. I actually played a significant part in getting the Chinese government to raise the welfare standards on fur farms to match those in Europe, which were considered to be the highest. Um, but I, I said to him, look, you know, I can tell you fundamentally that... There is no systemic cruelty in the fur trade generally. And from my experience in China, animals are treated extremely well. Um, I, was that being disingenuous? Well, was would, it true? Was that your experience? I Yes, but that didn't mean that it, other things were not going on. There are only certain ways in which you can kill animals um, legitimately in Europe, and it's called the slaughter directive. So it's not just a fur animals. That's if an animal needs to be euthanized, needs to be killed, you can only do it in certain ways. It's to minimise stress and welfare. And with fur animals, there's certain ways. And one of them, I mean, I don't know if you... It's not very nice, but for foxes, it's anal electrocution. Is it? Well... Yeah, yeah. Now, the science says the instant that that current is applied... They pass out and they die instantly. There is no pain. That's what the science is. But the concept, the idea of doing that to any animal, let alone simply for its fur, is horrendous. But then somebody, 
in this group said to me, so are, are you advocating the use of an electric probe to shove up an animal's tukhus, to, and <laughs> to kill it? And of course, all I could resort to was that's not, I know it sounds horrendous. That's, of course, it sounds horrendous. But these are scientists that have published their work. There's been peer reviewed that says this is the best method for doing it. It's the most. Now, I, I listen to myself saying this, and it's almost like a bit of an out of body experience. You're saying this, but this was the beginning of me saying, you're saying this, but do you really believe it? This was the beginning of the schism between my fundamental belief in the role of science in informing policy, informing opinion, and me thinking, look, just because the science says it's okay doesn't mean it is. Still to come, what happened when Mike changed his mind? Identity politics, self-loathing, and a dog called Barney. My interview with Mike Moser continues after this. episode of The Modern Man is sponsored by Beer 52. I recently ordered a selection and was really impressed by a coffee milk stout that was almost like a beer version of an espresso martini, an intriguing Earl Grey IPA and an amazing salted licorice raspberry sour. I discovered new favourites amongst drinks I'd never encountered before and exploring the goodies felt like a real treat during lockdown, especially as the artwork on some of the cans and bottles is genuinely beautiful. They'd make a really good gift. Give their service a whirl yourself with eight completely free beers and a snack and a magazine delivered to your home now. You just pay the postage of £5.95 beer52.com forward slash modern the word beer the number five the number two dot com forward slash modern it's a free trial so it becomes a subscription if you don't cancel but it's well worth staying on as a member especially as they make everything super flexible and you can tailor your selections to suit your tastes or pause your payments at any time if you need that's beer52.com slash modern for eight free beers and some luscious extras just pay for the post Bottoms up. Back to my interview with Mike now. And as the face of fur in Britain, he was getting some pretty high-profile invites to defend the industry. But in preparing for these occasions, he began to doubt himself. Whenever I would debate with a protagonist, I'd put myself in their position beforehand. I'd actually debate with myself mm. what questions they're going to ask, and therefore I'd come up with the answers in advance. I mean, I would be doing this, and I sort of came up against them several times. I, I, I realised I believed more in what they were saying than in my answers. I actually believed more in their criticism of the industry than I did in my responses. So are you literally sitting at home with a sheet of pros and cons and thinking, shit, I'm on this side? Yep. I got married for a second time five years ago, and... Um, I inherited, along with my beautiful wife, her wonderful Labrador, Barney. Now, I'd known Barney in all of our courting years, for many years before that. He was a real character. I never had a dog myself, mm-hmm. but I kind of knew him. And, and then when he came to live with us, it was the first time, I know for anybody that's listening that's had a dog, just try to understand the difference between knowing something with your head and knowing something with your heart. I knew what a lovely dog he was in my head, 
and when I was with him. But when he came to live with us, I fell in love with him. I absolutely understood why so many people today are passionate. His character, his relationship. And there was a moment, Ollie, when I sat down, I remember it was at the table in my kitchen and he was down there. Now, he was a bit of a fat lab, but in his earlier day when he was more svelte, he wasn't that much bigger than some of the big foxes that I'd seen in cages on a fox farm. And it was that was the epiphany. I actually thought, what on earth are you doing? Are you really saying it's okay to cage an animal barely smaller than him? In a cage, it's only one metre by, I think it's about one metre square, let's just say, for their entire lives. An animal whose natural instincts are to run, to hunt, to dig, to play. Anyone that's seen foxes in their back gardens, you're saying it's okay to do that. No, it isn't. It isn't. And I, I have to say, it was a bit of self-loathing at that point. How did that manifest itself? I, I, I thought about what I'd been saying and I actually really, I actually felt really, really, I felt disgust. For the first time, I actually felt disgust. It was only shortly after that that I basically told them that I was resigning. It took about a year and a half for us to actually find the correct divorce. What did they say? They were shocked. Did you explain why? Because yeah. you, you could, you're almost, <laughs> you're almost at a point in your career and your age where you could just say, "Look, I'm taking early retirement." You could have just said that, but you didn't, did you? You told no. them. I told them it was about, I think, about six months before the select committee hearing, and I knew that that was. And I just thought, "Look, I'll do this." And I said to them, I, "I've just lost my conviction. I cannot do this anymore. Um, I, I don't believe in what I'm saying. I realised that it's just fundamental. What are you doing? Why is it okay to cage a mink or a fox, but not a dog? Would anybody really consider caging their dog for their entire life? Of course you wouldn't do that. So why on earth is it okay to do it to other animals? It was such a relief the day I left. And I can remember the day after waking up in the house and thinking, like putting moisturiser on really dry hands. You You just... It was such a relief and I felt good. I felt good about myself for the first time in years. My, my, my associate at the Humane Society, who I had debated against several times on live TV, on live and radio, and she was the lady who I debated against in the Lords. And I said, so look, let's go for a coffee. I just, I've got something to tell you. And she said, sure, let's do this. So what did you for, think it was going to be? Well, that's just it. We met for coffee and we, we exchanged pleasantries and she kind of said, okay, so what do you want to talk about? And I, I said to her, look, I just want to let you know that um, I've, I've, I'm leaving the furniture. I'd left the furniture, but I wanted you to know that I've only ever held you in the highest respect. Um, in all the times that we've ever debated, um, you've always held yourself to be incredibly professional, objective, and I, I wanted you to know that I really respect what you've done. And she was a bit taken aback by that. She said, oh my God, I thought you'd come to tell us that you're going to sue us for something like that. I said, no, not at all. So we had a, we had a nice coffee. And um, she said, look, would you ever consider coming out and speaking against fur? And I said to her, look, no, at this moment in time, no. I've got no antipathy towards the industry per se. Um, I don't agree. But at this stage, I'm a professional. I've left that profession now. But you're also a communications professional. You know how big a story that is. But I also didn't want to, I didn't feel, I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't leave. I wasn't angry when I left. 
I wasn't bitter towards anybody. I left because simply I no longer believed. And as a communications professional, I wasn't going to advocate for something I didn't believe in. Right. But coming out for the opposing side is in itself. Now, it's just an interesting story, isn't yeah. it? Now, several months later, we met again and um, for coffee. And she said, look, how are you feeling? How, what are you doing? And I told her about my improving culinary skills and my horticultural skills, some of which you can see about us today. And she said, well, look, you know, we, we, are, we are now beginning to put together a campaign to advocate for the banning of fur in the UK, a trade ban. Have your views changed? And I'd had time to think long and hard about how I felt, you know, as we've been doing today. I felt that I had probably done a lot of damage. No, I had done a lot of damage, I think morally, but also certainly practically. I didn't lose sleep at night thinking, you know, thousands of animals have died because of what I'd done. I think that would be a little bit trite to have said that. But certainly I, I did feel at that time if I can somehow remedy and make good, but also support something that I do now really strongly believe in. But so does my family. <laughs> so do my friends. And so we spoke about ways in which I could lend my support to, to this campaign. But that would mean potentially harming all the people you used to support the fur farmers the traders that you've talked about that are third or fourth generation you'd be harming all the people you ever work with that's absolutely right and i still have an awful lot of affection for people in the industry but that doesn't mean that i support what they're doing you know i i allowed a degree of ambivalence to prevail in those years in which i was losing conviction and was persuading myself look, it's okay to carry on doing this because you can pick and choose what you consider to be right. But sometimes you've also got to look at the big picture. Look, sometimes I might get a biscuit and just pick out the raisins and just leave the other bits behind. But then when you eat the whole biscuit, you get a totally different experience. You can't, I think you've got to be careful if you pick and choose your morals. I think you've got to be, look at the consequences of those morals. And what I what need to do today is to say what is the bigger picture here there may be some people that will be hurt economically but the industry now is already because of other circumstances not because of me is already now in a catastrophic fall if i can accelerate that demise a little bit then you know so be it i think these people have had enough um, heads up warning that the industry is in a decline and for them to be transitioning into other industries how did it feel the first time you spoke to a newspaper or a TV camera with your new views? Why I think it came out big time was that um, there was a bit of a, a, a media burst on the same day. There was a large double-page spread in the Daily Mirror. There was an interview with me, but also Sky Sky News did a big rolling story. There was a, a few nerves, not so much in terms of how the industry would respond, because I, I could fundamentally defend my position I did get one or two contacts from ex-colleagues. I had one person ring me up in tears and said, look, you've let us down. But I explained to her how I felt and that at some point you need to stand by what you believe in. What did she say? She could understand why I was doing it, but she was still devastated. She took it very personally. No, it probably shocked a lot of people because, you know, not only didn't go away benignly into the night, you actually have come out. But that's fine. It's okay to change your mind. I think that's what people need to understand, Ollie. It is okay to change your mind. It is okay to realise that something that you did in the past is now viewed 
through the lens of today as a mistake and to try to rectify that. I could have gone away and just put a circle around my fur career and said, yeah, okay. There were good bits, lots of good bits, maybe some less good bits. Let that go into the river. Let that go into the river of time and float away and you can forget about it. But I wanted to do something. I wanted to do something which I now today believe very strongly in. So that's why I'm I'm happy to come out publicly and vocally to explain to people why I believe that fur has had its time and it's time that it stopped. It's quite unfashionable to change your mind. I, you know, it is. And yet I, I think politicians are missing a massive trick here. We're human beings. Nobody, nobody has ever been fault free. We've all at some point, in fact, it's a strength to change your mind to realise. I forgot who said this. When the facts change, I think it was Keynes. He said, when the facts change, so do my opinions. We should all be open to the possibility of changing our opinions when the facts change. But people are so polarised. If politicians do change a policy, it's called a U-turn and they're attacked for that. So is there a cultural problem around nuance? (laughs) There really is. People pin their identity to a particular position and they become intractable. They feel, I can't change my opinion because then it's questioning me. That's not healthy. You also wonder the extent to which it's possible to be judged by all the standards you judge everyone else by. I mean, this is what we're seeing routinely now, isn't it? People of my generation and a bit younger are losing jobs all over the shop because someone's trawled back through something they said on social media 10 years ago. And it doesn't seem possible to say, well, of course I said that then and I've changed my mind now and I'm a different person now. People want to, you know, lynch you for what you did then. There seems to be in a lot of people an underlying need to be unpleasant. To want to to want to pick on people, I, I see some similarities. When I go back to my school days, you know the playground politics of the strong picking on the weak, but the anonymity that social media gives people now is allowing the weak to pick on the strong, and it does seem incredibly unfair. We've all said things and done things in the past, which today we may either put our hands over and go, "Oh my word, did I say that?" and actually be fundamentally embarrassed. Everybody's culpable, everybody's guilty, but a lot of people want to hold others up to a higher degree of 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 of, of criticism than they will on their own. In fact, they will be hypocrites in that respect. But I mean, are you sort of letting yourself off the hook in a way in that you made this decision when you got to a certain age? And actually there'll be people listening to this who are in their twenties and thirties who might work for a coffee shop that they know is selling out-of-date food or might work for a charity that they know the money isn't reaching the people they're raising money for or a newspaper that is dog-whistling to racist people and they feel ethically compromised but it's their job and they need the money and they feel like, actually, if I didn't work here, I'd work somewhere else and everywhere's got problems. Look, everybody has needs. There's needs and there's wants and particularly at the moment in time with the the socio-economic position we find ourselves in we have to sometimes relax our moral expectations because we've got to metaphorically and physically put food on the plate i certainly wouldn't sit here and and condemn anybody that makes a decision which they feel at that moment in their life is an essential decision to make we have to somehow evaluate our decisions against a whole range of shifting moralities but we still have to earn a living. 
What happened to your raccoon Parker? I took the raccoon off. I've still got the Parker. It's 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 really it's a fantastic coat, and I like it a lot. I, I took the fur off because, well, for for obvious reasons. First of all, I'd be uncomfortable wearing it. Secondly, I really do try hard not to be a hypocrite. Sometimes. What did you do I with am. it? What did you do with a piece of raccoon? I threw it away in the bin. Yeah. Mike Moser. And if you've got a story you would like to share, perhaps you've changed your mind about something fundamental to your life, do reach out via the feedback form on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Uh, we don't always find the time to reply to every email, but we do read them all. Uh, still to come, what happens when sex goes on for hours? Alex Fox tackles delayed ejaculation after this. <laughs> Let's get on with getting off. Time for the foxhole with Alex Fox. Hello. Hello, Ollie. I'm ready to cast some spells of source-based sorcery all over our listeners' ears today. Yes, that, that makes work? sense. Yeah, I just have to run it through <laughs> my head. Um, <laughs> I was slightly distracted as well by the fact that written down on the notepad in front of me, I have one note from you, and that's the word labiaplasty. Yes, I was recently a guest on Radio 4's Woman's Hour talking about vulval anxiety and the humongous increase in particularly young women seeking labiaplasty, which is uh, as primarily aesthetic uh, elective surgery to, uh, in most cases, trim, shorten and make more symmetrical the labia minora. That's the in- internal labial lips. And is that based on porn? Although porn does both anecdotally and according to some academic research play a a, a part in this, it might not be as influential as a lot of people assume it is. And actually um, looking at it as a convenient catch-all scapegoat may mean that we're missing other problems that are having negative impacts on young women's views of their own genitals. Um, For starters, misogynistic put-downs of women's natural anatomy and the corresponding shame have been around for a lot longer than online porn has. I mean, what kind of thing? Like, if someone says, don't be a pussy, that's not going to make me think, I need my labia to be tighter, is it? No, I'm more talking about the kind of slang that you hear, like beef curtains or hanging hands or Uh, things that that are directly pejorative towards women's anatomies. The standard argument about porn says a lot of the images that you see in porn have probably been digitally altered to make people's vulvas look more neat, discreet and petite and more like a Barbie doll slit. Um, A lot of the bodies that you might see in porn, it is assumed, uh, may have been surgically altered to look that way. Uh, And also perhaps women who naturally have um, more symmetrical, shorter labia, because that is considered, by Western standards at least, to be more desirable, uh, they prove more popular in porn, they get more views, and thus that idea that that is an attractive type of vulva, or the most attractive type of vulva, gets perpetuated. And there is some stock some stock in that. Um, but actually, when you look into the research, it seems like other elements of society are playing a far greater part uh, in bringing women's uh, self-image down. There's a massive lack of education of what uh, normal vulvas actually look like and the breadth of variety that normal includes. Most people are really not wise 
about what's between their thighs. And and guys aren't either, to continue my rhyme. That also applies to guys. We know that for a lot of women, um, starting to feel uncomfortable about the way their body looks begins around the ages of 11 to 13, when puberty hits. And uh, as part of that process, the labia minora naturally become a bit darker and tend to protrude a bit more. They become more frilly. They may become a bit more asymmetrical. But most school education only really talks about pubic hair growth in relation to women's bodies. So they're not receiving information about these changes as they're happening and thus they're perceived to be odd and that's right at the time when these young girls are often immersed in the kind of playground slang that I've just mentioned that can be incredibly upsetting. But you're talking about this as if it's an entirely negative trend I mean I'm trying to think of a male equivalent here but I mean you know like people who get a penis extension and it doesn't really add a great deal of length or they might get a circumcision for aesthetic reasons not for any medical need they might afterwards feel really good about it. I mean, presumably there's people who are having labiaplasties that are really thrilled they've done it. Ultimately, it's an individual's decision, but sometimes those decisions are not made entirely in isolation from societal pressures. And so I think really examining why you feel bad about yourself and making sure that you have taken the time to look at um, more more varied, more realistic depictions of vulvas before you make a decision to undergo surgery, which can have real health risks and financial impact too. Elective labioplasty costs between two and four thousand pounds and there is no guarantee that it's not going to um, leave you with uh, injuries either. I'm concerned that one study found that over a third of women who seek labioplasty can remember and recall a specific negative or insulting comment made about their body by somebody else else, compared to only 3% of women who don't seek labiaplasty. A lot of the time, this major surgery that carries major real risks and has a major impact on your bank balance as well as your body is motivated by what other people think and not the truth, which is that your body is most likely to be very normal and very gorgeous. Fascinating stuff. Um, Okay, time to take your questions of sex now, supported by our friends at thehandy.com. A magnificent masturbatory machine for males that moves a textured sleeve up and down the penis using a motor at a pace of up to 10 strokes per second, making it the most powerful toy of its kind on the market. And we'll tell you a bit more about them again later. Uh, This month's question comes from Cal, who says, I have difficulty reaching orgasm. This has been an issue for me ever since I lost my virginity. My sex sessions can last from an hour to four hours and almost never conclude for me. This can go on for months at a time and has ended otherwise good relationships. And the reactions from GPs I've seen have ranged from disbelief to laughter or telling me I should be happy I can last so long. For me, sex is still fun, and although orgasms are quite the enjoyable event, I still get great satisfaction out of pleasing my partner, I have no underlying health concerns, and my erections are still rather good at the age of 41, lasting for hours when I'm stimulated. But Alex, how can I come quicker? It's appalling, and I'm really sorry, that doctors responded to you 
by thinking that this was funny or easily dismissed. It's totally valid to feel upset about this. Um, not being able to orgasm for hours and hours can affect relationships. We know from previous letters that um, in partnered relationships, if one person is struggling to orgasm, the, the other lover can often think that that's their fault. So it can, you know, the emotional involvement there can be very challenging. And actually, even if you're talking about a doctor here who completely wrongfully uh, feels that sort of sexual enjoyment isn't part of their domain, just from a purely kind of medical perspective, it would affect your opportunity to procreate as well, wouldn't it? If you're not sure when you're going to ejaculate. So actually, if yeah. you remove pleasure from the equation, if you went to your doctor and said we're trying to have a baby and I can't come. That's actually a very serious issue, isn't it? Yeah, if you can't shoot your load, it's very difficult to get somebody up the duff. Um, It can also really affect how you feel about yourself and your body. And this is a a recognised medical complaint. It's called delayed ejaculation. Uh, The NHS actually classifies uh, delayed ejaculation as being when orgasm takes 30 minutes or beyond. So an hour or four hours is well into that domain. There are two types of delayed ejaculation, lifelong versus acquired. Um, In Cal's case, I think we're looking at lifelong here. And also generalised versus situational. Is this something that's happening Mm. all the time or is it uh, specific to certain circumstances? His seems quite generalised. Because just for people listening who don't have that particular condition but have had that experience... Obviously, in situational delayed ejaculation, then much as you wouldn't want to tell the partner it's because of them and you wouldn't want to give them a complex, often is because it's something to do with the partner, isn't it? Something to do with the way you're connecting with each other that is different with that person. Um, Just as I suppose it's a reversal of a premature ejaculation, isn't it? It might be that you come very quickly with other people. Yeah, absolutely. It might be that um, certain elements of a situation just aren't turning you on. You might be tired, you might be distracted, uh, you might be finding a particular physical movement or motion just isn't sufficiently stimulating you. There are a whole plethora of both physical and psychological reasons that might mean that you can't quite get to O-Town in a particular circumstance. Um, But Cal's situation is a little bit different because he's permanently chugging that train and it's hardly ever getting into the station. At its root, there could be a physical problem here. I'd be intrigued to know whether he's uh, circumcised or what the situation is with his foreskin. That could be affecting uh, his his sensitivity. Uh, there might be a possibility of nerve damage. If he had a situation as a younger person where he was masturbating and struggling to get off, then that could have in turn created a, um, a psychological feedback loop where he was expecting that not to happen. He was expecting masturbation to be difficult and thus the problem was exacerbated and elongated. Um, if this was somebody else... Um, And Cal does mention that he's not on any medication or taking any drugs. Um, I would want to ask them whether they are on antidepressants. Things like SSRIs um, can very commonly make um, ejaculation hard to achieve. I chatted to psychosexual and relationship uh, psychotherapist Sylvan Neves, and he says that he sees delayed ejaculation like this quite frequently as a psychosexual presentation of trauma. Um, Now, I'm really keen not to diagnose Cal from a distance here or pathologize his situation or frighten him in any way um but it's quite Silva told me that um for particularly um for men something really traumatic can happen to them early in life and the message they get 
uh, from society is that it's masculine to just move on from that, just get on with it. So often men can go through really quite challenging and upsetting things and wipe them out of their mind. That, that trauma can be really repressed until they actually examine that. They may not be aware of how big an impact and how truly traumatic something that happened to them really was. So to be clear, though, I mean, obviously what you're saying would make sense if you're talking about um, sexual abuse or harassment or something like that. But could it be a non-sexual trauma manifesting itself sexually? Absolutely. Uh, If there's been something like being beaten up, something painful happening to your body can cause you to dissociate. The brain has really quite remarkably clever mechanisms of helping you to feel okay and helping you to cope. But over time, what originally uh, felt like a good solution to your brain can become a problem in itself. Um, With dissociation, your brain essentially goes, we are not here. This is not happening to us. This never happened. Seems like a great way of moving on from something, right? Until you actually want to be present in your body, for example, when you're experiencing pleasure and your brain puts those same blocks up. Um, Also, if you've been told that or, or given messages, even subconsciously, that you are not a worthy person, that you don't deserve pleasure, then that could be playing a psychological part in ejaculation becoming difficult. If you've been in a religious situation where you've been told that uh, this is sinful or dirty or shameful, Mm. if you have questioned your sexuality or are doing so now, then that might be at play. If you want to take the more physical route, though, and experiment with toys... I would actually suggest taking a back route or a back door route. Anal and prostate stimulation could be particularly useful to Cal because they're not focusing on the penis. So they offer a brand new type of stimulation in an area of the body that perhaps uh, is not associated with struggle and failure and these negative emotions that he's uh, no doubt experienced over time. Yeah, I think Um, I've heard interviews, numerous interviews with sex workers when they've said you know if if we've been going for 50 minutes and I need to wrap this up by the top of the hour that's that's what I do it's finger up the arse uh yeah prostate stimulation and anal stimulation can uh, be very intense um and so and also because it's a different type of feeling it's almost an opportunity to, to turn over a new leaf and try a fresh page if you get me so it's trying something brand new assuming that this is brand new to Cal might be a good way to go um I was chatting to Luke Douglas who's a writer for Girl on the Net and um he he suggested uh, anal and prostate toys and also said um it might be uh, worth trying something like poppers. It is a chemical that you sniff. It does have its own risks. So make sure as a risk-aware adult, you do your homework there and weigh up whether this is the right choice for you and make sure that you understand everything about it. Um, but that is a legal thing that you can you can try if you're, if you're so inclined. Uh, another thing that you might want to take the route of is potentially e-stimulation. Uh, or uh, electric stimulation. Um, Do you remember one of our Christmas parties, Ollie? (laughs) (laughs) Did not expect those words to be coming out. Where I made you and Ollie I remember them being very wholesome, Alex. I don't know, whatever you're about to say. I can't imagine. (laughs) Uh, I made you and Ollie hold... Yeah, we played a hideous quiz where you punished us with electric shocks through a tube that was designed to stimulate a clitoris. I do remember that, Alex. When that (laughs) happens to you, you tend not to forget. 
These toys work in a very different way to vibration. Uh, they stimulate the nerves directly with electrical impulses, which sounds scary, but you can start off at a very mild end of the spectrum. And Cal might find that uh, potentially uh, revelatory because, again, it trips the body into a response in a very different way to uh straightforward hand-to-gland masturbation or penetrative sex. So that might be something that uh, that he wants to explore. All right, lots of ideas there for Cal. And talking of toys, thanks once again to our sponsors, thehandy.com. Yes, when it comes to masturbation machines, this really is the tailor-made tux of luxury fucks. You can change the stroke length, the speed, <laughs> One of the cuts the off from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> Well, it will umper your lumper to your exact liking <laughs> or mood. Um, the handy can be remotely controlled, so whether you're in Tottenham and your lover's in Timbuktu, you can share a really intimate experience together. Plus, it mm. syncs up with adult videos. There's a load of free ones on um, the handy.com sister site, handyfeeling.com. Um, I checked them out, and you can uh, choose between simulating oral sex or penetrative sex or a hand job or a tit job. There's lots to choose from. But your first port of call before you enter anyone else's port should be thehandy.com, where if you use the voucher code FOXHOLE, F-O-X-H-O-L-E, you can get free express shipping. So we'll sort the P&P and you can get the handy directly on your PP. <laughs> and if you have a question of sex for Alex to answer in next month's Foxhole, uh, head on over to monmanwithtwoends.co.uk and click feedback. You can remain completely anonymous if you wish. Thanks, Alex. Cheers, Ollie. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this month's Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new ambassador. It is Adam in Hong Kong, who says, Ollie, I've been a long-time fan and beer money contributor, but I notice you already have a ambassador for Hong Kong. However, as there are about 7 million of us here, I'd like to be considered ambassador for Happy Valley within Hong Kong. It's a quiet little part of a crazy busy city where you can watch the horses run on a Wednesday night. Adam, you have painted a picture with words. How could I resist? I now pronounce you Manbassador for Happy Valley. Congratulations. Uh, until next time, our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Matt Hill. And we'll see you with something new on the 10th of May. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.